Jireh, the Lord, our provider. Thank God for that. We need his provision. Amen. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10 in just a moment. Be finding that. Just a, um, a word of appreciation this morning for uh, families who are uh, the, have the special challenge of having real small children in the service here that's not normally where they are, but we're I tell you, I, th- I think you're managing well. We thank the Lord for it. It's not an inconvenience at all, so don't be worried about it. And um, just muzzle them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. And we talked some this week about uh, the process of kind of reopening probably the nursery first. And I know that, um, you know, we just, we just really want to, the timing to be right. and We don't want to get ahead of things. So uh, just pray with us about that. But I'm just glad we can meet. I'm glad we can assemble, worship together, and I'm thanking the Lord for that today. And I know he will provide wisdom as we trust him for that uh, going forward. So again, good to see you. Good to have guests today. We thank the Lord for you. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10 in Sunday mornings for uh, many months now, well over a year, year and a half or so. We've been going through the gospel of Mark and uh, looking forward to get into this portion of scripture today. We're going begin to begin reading in verse 32. And if you're able to stand, please stand with us today before we read our text and then pray. Mark chapter 10 and verse 32. The Bible says, And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus went before them. And they were amazed... And as they followed, they were afraid. The pronouns there, they, them, referring to the the 12 apostles that were with Jesus, but also the group that was traveling to Jerusalem, but primarily his his apostles said they were, Jesus went before them and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the 12 and began to tell them what things should happen Unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. They're the pronoun they, talking about these chief priests and scribes. They shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, talking about the Roman authority. They shall deliver him to the Gentiles and they, now the pronoun they is talking about the Roman soldiers, and they shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. I want to focus really on this Uh, phrase in verse 32 we'll look at this entire passage together but in verse 32 where it says as they followed they were afraid talking about the disciples as they followed they were afraid and let's pray and ask for God's help today as we study his word father thank you for the word of God today thank you for the privilege again that's ours to worship you thank you for the God that you are And that, Lord, you are our provider. And, Father, that you will not only provide 
our salvation, but you provide the grace that we need to go through this journey, this life. We pray that you'd bless today as we study. Help us to receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save the soul. Open our minds, our hearts. Help us to be attentive. May you be glorified. May Christ be exalted. May the saints be edified and those without Christ be convicted of their need, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The Bible says there in verse 32 that they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. And as you probably know, the word their way is a very uh, specific word having to do with a road, a journey. So the word is, the word, uh, is actually uh, hodos in the Greek. Sometimes it's translated as highway. There was a main road that went to Jerusalem, and they were on that road ascending up to Jerusalem. They were almost to Jericho. If you look there in verse 46 of the same chapter, we'll get to this in a few weeks. It says, and they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho. So this is the main road going up to Jerusalem. On They'll go through Jericho, which is on the western side of the Jordan River. Uh, the distance from Jericho to Jerusalem is about 15 miles. So kind of put this in your mind. They're going to be at Jericho. The next stop is Jericho. Following that, they're going to Jerusalem. Be like driving from here to Washington. That's the distance that they will travel. We have a map, I think, that we could look at that kind of shows you this. Hope you can see that. You see where Jesus started this last leg of his earthly uh, ministry up in around the Sea of Galilee, actually a little further north of that even. Uh, and then he's traveling down, came through uh, part of Galilee and then into Samaria. And Luke talks about that Samaritan uh, visit. And then he crosses to the right over the Jordan River. You see that and travels on south. And then he'll make that bend to the west, to your left, that'll take him to Jericho. So Jericho, just west of the river uh, the Jordan River, and then from Jericho on to Jerusalem. We've been talking about this last leg of his earthly ministry now for months. And so he's going up to, the Bible says, up to Jerusalem. It's an, it's an elevation climb as you go up to Jerusalem. Matter of fact, Jericho is about 800 miles below sea level. Jericho is the lowest city in the world. He's going to leave Jericho and he's going to go up to uh, Jerusalem, which is about 2,500 miles above sea level. So in 15 miles, he's going to go from about 800 feet below sea level up to 2,500 feet above sea level. Did I say miles? A climb of about 3,000, 3,500 feet in 15 miles. He's going to ascend up to Jerusalem. So we look at our text here in verse 32 and they were in the way going up to Jerusalem and it says this and Jesus went before them so Jesus this is uh, noteworthy as Mark is giving us this gospel they weren't just kind of walking along in a group and and some would be ahead some would be behind but Jesus is clearly leading the way and notice what it says about the disciples in verse 32 they were amazed and as they followed, they were afraid. 
Now, when we think of the word amazement, when I think of amazement, I think about something that would be wonderful, something that would be awesome, something that would be, you know, beautiful. But the word amazement here means that they were astounded. They were troubled. They were confused about what was taking place. They were baffled, perplexed. They were, as they followed him, it says two things about them. They were amazed. And then it says they were afraid. And the word afraid is a translation from the word phobos, where we get our word phobia, like claustrophobia, the fear of closed places. They were afraid. They were not only, they were not only bewildered, they were actually fearful and terrified and anxious. So as they followed him, think about this, clearly described in the scriptures, they're headed to Jerusalem, and as they're following him, they were perplexed by what is about to take place, and they were very fearful. And it wasn't that they were fearful about, about Golgotha, about Calvary, about his death, because they still didn't understand that. We'll see that in a moment. But there was a foreboding in them just about going to Jerusalem. You know, Jesus has spent most of his time in Galilee, in the northern region, and even there, his critics were primarily from Jerusalem. They followed him everywhere. They, they wanted to kill him. As a matter of fact, uh, in John chapter 11, where the Bible records when Jesus was going to go into Judea, uh, he said to his disciples he was going to go into Judea. The occasion was he got news that Lazarus was sick. And, of course, we know that he died but when he said something about going into Judea, his disciples caught, cautioned him about going into Judea, actually to the city of Bethany, which is just outside Jerusalem. I want to read a quote from John 11. The disciples said to Jesus, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? That's why they were concerned about going into Jerusalem. They knew how much the Jews hated Jesus, talking about the religious elitists, the crowd, the, 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 the hierarchy of Judaism. They hated Jesus. They followed him around. They threatened to kill him. And so they said, why are we going there? They want to kill you. And Jesus said to them in John 11, basically, he insisted that we're going. And Thomas said this, when Jesus said, we're going to go, even though you're objecting, Thomas said, let us also go, that we may die with him. Even when they went to Bethany for the occasion of Lazarus' death, Thomas said, if we go, it's going to be a death sentence for us. So when it says that they are now, later, traveling into Jerusalem, when it says they were amazed and afraid, it wasn't just because they were afraid he was going to die. They were afraid they might all die. Verse 32, I want to make... Another mention of this, it says, as they were in the way going up to Jerusalem and Jesus went before them and they were amazed and as they followed, they were afraid. I think this is worth mentioning that even though they were amazed and afraid, they were still following him. You know, they didn't understand what Jesus was doing, but they still followed him. They didn't agree with him. They disagreed with Jesus and what his plan was, but still they were following him. They were afraid, but they still followed him. And I think it's a good point for us to think about this morning. We don't just follow him 
when it's easy. We don't just follow him when it's popular. We don't just follow him when we agree. We follow him whatever he says and wherever he wants us to go. And I say that today because there could be someone, I'd be surprised if there wasn't someone here today and there's something in your life that you know you'd be better off doing to follow Jesus, but you're sort of afraid to do it. And this is an encouragement to me that we follow him even if we are afraid. We follow him even if it seems like it doesn't make sense. We're still going to follow him. And I would encourage you, if that's you today, to decide right now. I'm going to follow Jesus even though I may not agree, even though I may not understand it, even though I may not may not be able to put all the reasons why together, I'm still going to follow him. By the way, that's what a disciple is called to do. Follow Jesus. So there's no doubt at this moment the disciples are puzzled. But Jesus' mind is made up. That's why he came, by the way. He's going to return to Jerusalem. With that is verse 32, kind of looking at verse 32 in detail. Let's look at the last part of the verse. And it says, and he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto them. So Jesus begins to explain to the disciples. And I just want to encourage you today to try to put yourself in their place. Because we, you know, we've heard the gospel story. We know what happened when Jesus got into Jerusalem. We sort of take it for granted and think everybody understands it. But these men did not understand it. Even at this point, they did not understand it. And he says to them in verse 33, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. The word behold is an exclamation. It's an emphatic word. It's like what I'm about to say is super important. We are going up to Jerusalem. The language is in verse 33, we go up. This is what we're doing. It's not debatable. We're not, it's not for discussion. We're not going to vote on it. You may be afraid. You may be nervous. You may be questioning what I'm doing. But we are going to Jerusalem. His face was set. He was steadfastly fixed on his mission to go to Calvary. I want to read a quote from Luke chapter 9 that I'm reminded of when I read this it says and it came to pass when the time was come that he should be delivered up he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem he set his face Uh, matter of fact you may be reminded of a quote in the book of Isaiah when Isaiah said this talking about the Messiah therefore have I set my face like a flint And I know that I shall not be ashamed. His his face was set like a rock. He wasn't being stubborn. He was being resolute. This is what I know I came to do. Nothing at this point, nothing could stop him, or at any point for that matter, from his appointment at Golgotha. Um, it, It sounded shocking, I believe, to these men. It was disturbing It was strange. It seemed reckless. It seemed dangerous. But he said that's exactly what we're going to do. And if you look in verse 32 where it says, um, he took again the 12. He he took the 12 aside. This is made 
even clearer in Matthew's gospel where Matthew said he took the 12 disciples apart in the way and said unto them. So get the picture. They're traveling. They've been traveling. Just kind of review a little bit. This was not just a normal time on the road to Jerusalem. It was Passover time. Lots of people traveled that road. The people from Galilee who would go to Jerusalem for Passover not, did not travel through Samaria as a rule. That's why they crossed over the Jordan River. It's a very busy place. They're going for the, the highlight of the Jewish calendar is Passover. This is a big occasion. We can only imagine the numbers of people that would be making that journey. And with all those people around, Jesus took his 12 and called them aside. He's going to speak to them specifically, speak to them directly. He took the disciples apart, the Bible says. Hold your finger here in Mark uh, chapter 10, if you would, please, and turn to the gospel of Luke. And I want to read something that Luke gives us in chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and we'll take up reading in verse 31. Same occasion, same place, recording the same event that Mark writes about in Mark chapter 10. In verse 31 of Luke 18, it says, Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. Notice the verse, the next verse. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. Again, we know what's going to take place. We're familiar with what will transpire in Jerusalem, but these guys did not get it. They did not understand it. The Bible says there in Luke it was hid from them. Now, go back to Mark chapter 10, if you would, and just notice uh, in verse 32 the word again. It says, And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto them. Again means he's already told them before. Matter of fact, look in Mark chapter 9 and verse uh, 31. Mark 9, 31. It says, for he taught... Let's just look at verse thir, beginning of verse 30. Mark 9, 30. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee. This is when they're in the northern region of Galilee. And would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them... The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and after that he is killed. He shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. I love the, the Bible, don't you? And uh, you might wonder, well, why don't all the Gospels say the same things? Because God didn't put it together that way. But when you put the Gospels together, you get more information, bits and pieces along the way. So Jesus had already said that to them, this is going to happen. And they didn't understand it. 
But none of them had the nerve. Let's imagine that kind of amazing that Peter didn't have the nerve to ask the question, explain to us what that means. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're not going to turn to it, Matthew records three different and distinct occasions where Jesus told the disciples what was going to happen when they got to Jerusalem, but they still didn't get it. They didn't understand it, though he was trying to explain that to him. And, um, you know, Let's go back to Mark chapter 10 if you're not there. But one thing that stands out to me as I read this passage in Mark chapter 10 and verse 32 and following is how Jesus knew every detail that was ahead. None of this would be a surprise. He knew he would be betrayed by the very, one of the men that was in the midst of them, by Judas Iscariot. He knew the humiliation that he would face. He knew the agony that awaited him. Jesus, they didn't even know what was taking place, but Jesus knew all the details of it. He knew the suffering and the sorrow of his soul that would be so intense, the Bible says, that drops of blood would seep out of the pores of his skin. Jesus knew all of this. He knew that Peter, one of the group in the group, one of his closest in the group, would deny him three times. He knew he would be mocked. He knew that he would be beaten. He knew that he would bear in his body the sins of the entire human race. Jesus knew all of this. As I read this, I'm amazed at his resolve. I'm amazed at his commitment. I'm amazed at his love. Love for the Father. Love for sinners. I'm amazed at Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it kind of perturbs me. Well, more than kind of perturbs me. When people depict Jesus as some kind of a sissy, some kind of a wimp, some kind of a weakling, I'm telling you, Jesus was the greatest of all men. He was God in the flesh, and he knew what awaited him. And so knowing that in Mark chapter 10, Jesus begins to lay out for them, succinctly but with more details than he did the previous times, what is waiting for him. Look with me in verse 33. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes. He would be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. Now who would deliver him to the chief priests and the scribes? It would be Judas Iscariot, who would betray him with a kiss. And he would be turned over to these religious people. And the Bible says in verse 33 there again, And they shall condemn him to death. And they the religious crowd would deliver him to the Gentiles, not to the Jewish people, but to the Roman authorities. These religious leaders then would demand that they crucify Jesus. The Jews could not crucify anyone. They could kill people by stoning, but they could not crucify him. And and the crucifixion, as you probably know, was so horrific that even a a Roman citizen couldn't even be crucified. But they wanted Jesus to be crucified. The Jews Jews turned him up. Judas Iscariot turned him over to the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders turned him over to the Roman people and the Roman soldiers, it says in verse uh, 34, and they shall mock him and scourge him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall... Kill him. 
They mocked him, they beat him, and then he says, of course, to the disciples in verse 34 that he would rise again. You know, I've asked this question lots of times, and we've talked about it, discussed it, or not discussed it, but pointed it out in services before, wondering why didn't they get it? Why didn't these disciples get it? I mean, hearing it over and over, why did, being all Jewish people, all familiar with the Old Testament, with the prophecies concerning the Messiah. But I'm reminded, for one thing, sometimes we hear things and read things and we're told things, but we don't really get it either. I mean, occasionally my wife and I'll be reading the Bible together and we'll, we'll run across something we've read many, many times, but we see it in a different way. We somehow, and, and, and so we're, don't be so hard on them. They, they were believers, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew that the Messiah would reveal himself and that he would one day reign as king. They knew all these things. They actually thought this would be it. That this, up until this time, they really felt that when Jesus would be, would be crowned as king in their presence, in their lifetime, and that they would serve with him in the kingdom. What they did not calculate was the suffering that would precede that. They did not put the, the explanation, for instance, in Psalm 22 about the crucifixion or, or Isaiah 53 or Zechariah's writing. They didn't put, somehow they didn't put these things together. They, they knew he would reign, but they did not know that he would be crucified. They did not know that he would suffer as he would suffer and be humiliated. They, did, they wanted him to be exalted, not humiliated. Death was not in their mind. This was not what they were expecting. And I think that to me tells us one of the reasons why they had a hard time seeing it. Because it wasn't what they were expecting to see. And you know, sometimes, just a little note, sometimes when people are preaching or teaching or we're reading the scripture, looking at something, if it's not what we want it to say, we sometimes miss what it's actually saying. The disciples did not get it. And then another question. Why did he tell them? Because not only did Jesus tell them, and not only did they not understand it, but Jesus told them knowing they would not understand it. And why would Jesus do that? And I don't know all the reasons why, but I do know this, that later, after he was crucified, and after he was risen from the dead, they did understand. They did recall these words and say, you know, that's exactly what he was telling us. So the largest week of the Jewish calendar is near. The highway going up to Jerusalem was, was I'm sure, crowded, abuzz with the multitudes of people making this trek worshiping annually at this time of the year. And Jesus, according to Mark's writing, is leading the way. But what they did not know was that the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, was actually leading them into Jerusalem where he would die for them. Everything, everything in Jewish history, everything in 
the Old Testament narrative, everything in the, the annals of history of mankind pointed to this event right here, what was about to take place. And if you think about all the Old Testament stories, the miracles, you know, the sacrifices, the various prophecies, and we heard about one of them as Ross was singing today about Abraham who took Isaac up on Mount Moriah and was ready to offer him as a sacrifice, but there was a substitution that God had made. Jehovah Jireh provided the substitute for Isaac. And all of these things pointed to what we're reading about here in Mark chapter 10. The promise of the seed of woman that would bruise the head of the serpent. The promise of the Passover lamb in Exodus who would put blood on the doorpost and the lintel. The promises throughout the scripture when Zechariah said, Behold, thy king cometh having salvation, lowly, riding upon the foal of an ass. That's all about to take place. Zechariah wrote about 30 pieces of silver that would use to betray him. We mentioned earlier Isaiah 53, that great prophecy, all points to this moment. As Bible-believing Christians, and that doesn't pertain to all of us, I'm sure, but those of us who've been saved, those of us who've been born again, this story of the cross can become so familiar. We know much about it. We've read about it. We've heard about it. But I'll tell you, there's nothing more important in all of history than what takes place right here at the cross. And it's a plan. It's not a miscalculation. It's not a mistake. Jesus didn't make a wrong turn when he went into Jerusalem. He was following God's precise plan. Matter of fact, the Bible says he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Everything up to this point pointed to this moment. The disciples were confused. The disciples were uh, perplexed. The disciples were fearful. The Bible's very clear about that. If they'd have had a business meeting, they would have voted not Jerusalem, not today, not now. But Jesus was focused like a laser because that's what he came for. That's why he came, was to suffer and die for us. Amen. You know, there are the, we have, a, we have a, an interesting example here in the Bible. Not only did the crowds not know why Jesus was going to Jerusalem, but those closest to him did not understand what was taking place. And I think it's worth thinking about this for a moment this morning. Lots and lots of people don't understand what we sometimes take for granted. What we sometimes feel like it's been told so many times why retell the story. But I'm telling you, there are people who don't even understand who Jesus is. I've talked to people so many times and so have you. They know Jesus was born in a manger they know Jesus was a great teacher but they don't really know who Jesus is maybe you're that's you today he's not he's more than a historical figure he is God in the flesh Emmanuel God with us he's the creator 
He's the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all those dozens and dozens of promises that there will come a deliverer, there will come a Messiah, there will come a Savior. He refers to himself here in this passage as the Son of Man in verse 33. The Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests. The Son of Man is a term, a messianic title that we find in the book of Daniel talking about the coming Messiah. People are clueless really about who he is and often clueless about why he came. You know, one of the reasons why when we pause long enough to think about it and we read the account of the suffering of Christ, one of the things that just draws us to it over and over and over again is because that price he was paying was for us. It was for me. It was for you. He came. Why did, why did all this happen? Why did, the, why did such a, a miscarriage of judgment, uh, judgment happen? Why, why, why would he go through all that? He went all through all that so that you could be saved. So that you could have forgiveness of sin. So many are in the dark about their own need for salvation. They don't understand I mean, people have been misled in so many ways. They think their religion will somehow make them acceptable to God. Or they think their good works, that somehow I can appease the holiness of God, the expectation of God by my good works. But I'm telling you, there's nothing that a sinless or a sinful person can do to remedy their situation. There had to be a sinless sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. It had to be a divine sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice for our salvation. And that's what Jesus did. And once once you understand how lost you are, how much you need a Savior, all of a sudden this story takes on a different light. We're all sinners and we're all incapable of atoning for sins. I don't don't think it's humanly possible. I know many, many people could do a far better job than I can, but I don't think it's humanly possible to fully describe, convey, paint the picture of the price that Jesus paid for us. And I think we ought to give time to thinking about that, to meditating upon that, seeking to comprehend it. But that was not the end. In what seems like sort of an anecdotal comment, at the end, Jesus says in verse 34, and the third day he shall rise again. What great victory we have in Jesus Christ. I was thinking this morning, you know, sometimes we get discouraged in life and we, we feel like there's no hope or we wonder, you know, how things are going to turn out. But I'm telling you, the greatest victory that was ever won was won for us, and that's through Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead. He conquered death. This is the most amazing prediction to me of all that Jesus made, and that prediction was not only would he die, didn't he, he told him over and over and over again, guys, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be beaten, and they're going to kill me, but don't give up, because I'm going to raise from the dead. 
You know, because he lives, because he lives, we shall live also. Not only do we have the promise of forgiveness of sin and life eternal, but even abundant living in this life. This is the greatest life there is. They sealed the tomb. They set guards to guard. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees knew that Jesus had claimed that after he died, he was going to raise three days later. And they went to Pilate. And they said to Pilate, we remember that deceiver, talking about Jesus. He said this while he was yet alive. After three days, I'll rise again. We'll fix it. We'll seal the tomb. We'll set guards to watch it. But you could not conceal the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The sins of every, this is the victory. The sins of every person. The sins of every person in this room. The sins of every person that's ever lived can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. He bore in his body on the tree our sins. Let's make it personal. This historic event, this sacrificial event, completely changed the trajectory of our lives and the lives of countless other people. A lot of people don't understand that. I've, I've had friends of mine that were friends when I got saved. And to them, we got religion. We started going to church, you know. We got, we didn't just get religion. Amen. We got life. Amen. Something supernatural happened within us because of what Jesus is described as doing here in our text. Now, I, I ask you today, would you think with me for a moment? What about you? What about you? Can you look back at a time in your life? You may not remember exactly what the day is, but can you look back at a time in your life and say that's where it happened? When by faith, I believed on Jesus Christ as my Savior, realizing that I was a sinner, knowing that I couldn't save myself, but I put my faith and trust in Jesus. Answer it in your mind right now. Have you received the gift of eternal life? Have you been born again? Has Jesus Christ changed your life? I won't do this, but if I were to do this, and some people wouldn't mind doing it, but if I were to ask you, come up here and stand behind this microphone and explain to us in your own words how you know you're going to heaven. Could you say with confidence, because there was a time in my life, maybe a few weeks ago, maybe a few years ago, maybe many years ago, but there was a time in my life when I individually, personally, received Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I know at that moment I was born again. What would you say? You say, well, I don't really know what I would say. Then you need to get that matter settled. You need to come to Jesus Christ. And, and you don't have to have all your ducks in a row. You don't have to have your act together. What you have to do is come and say, I believe that Jesus was the Messiah who came to die on the cross for my sins and I personally want to receive him as my Savior. I want to turn to him with all of my heart and trust Christ. If you do that, then you'll be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know why he did all this? Listen, he didn't just do all this so 
we could tell his story and over and over. He did all this that we could know him, that we could have a relationship with him, that he would be real in our lives. And I look around this congregation, and I know many of you can rejoice in the fact that it's not just what others say about him, it's what you know to be true because you've personally received Christ as your Savior. But if you haven't, you ought to come to him today. You can come to him today. I'll be standing down here at the front in just a moment. And walking up here won't make you a Christian. But if you'll turn to Christ, put your faith in him. He doesn't, it's not complicated, it's simple. It's not what we do, it's what he's done. Receive him by faith. And you can know with assurance in your heart that heaven is your home, your sins are forgiven. This will be the greatest day of your life. And it could be today that you're sitting here today and if you just really examine your heart, you might think, you know, it's true. Sometimes I've heard the story so many times that it sort of loses its power in my life. It loses some of the magnetism that it ought to have. And I'm telling you, we ought to, that's why we, as the psalm writer said, we survey, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gains I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. We don't follow a religion. We follow Jesus Christ. And it could be today that like these disciples, sometimes following Jesus leads you down a road that you find more than challenging, maybe even fearful, maybe something you don't understand. It causes you to hold back. But listen, disciples will always be called upon to trust him and obey him, even if we don't always agree or understand. It's the life of a disciple. Amen. Let's bow our heads together.